Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, the story of a migrant mother who was separated from her son and relocated to Brooklyn after a harrowing experience at the border. We spent most of the day in the court, and when we came back, the children were all gone. All they said was that they were busing us to where they were holding the children. So we were taken to another facility. months ago, you couldn't read, watch, or listen to the news without hearing about the caravan, the oddly cheery name for the thousand-strong group of migrants who were making their way from Central America through Mexico to the U.S. border. After months of politicking and fear-mongering, the news cycle has largely moved on. But what happened to the people who made the long journey from their home countries? Today we're joined by Kenya. Like thousands of other migrant mothers seeking asylum in the U.S., Kenya was held in a border detention center before she was called before a judge. After being sentenced to time served for illegally crossing the border, she returned to the detention center to learn that her nine-year-old son had been taken in her absence and sent to a home in Houston. She was told that if she asked any more questions, she would never see him again. Eventually, Kenya and her son were reunited with the help of human rights organizations, and a family in Brooklyn offered them a place to live. Kenya is now in the process of applying for asylum. Today, we're joined by Kim Shakes, whose family was sheltering her. Welcome to Woman 2 BK. Uh, Kate Shaltain is her lawyer, also here. Welcome to the show. And Kenya, thank you for joining us. Kate, maybe you can give us more background information. What is the situation on the ground like in Honduras right now? And why are so many people choosing to leave their home and make this incredibly difficult journey? Honduras is one of the most dangerous places on earth to be female. And essentially, men can do whatever they want to a woman in Honduras uh, with very little repercussions, if any repercussions at all. So a lot of the migrants asking for protection are women like Kenya, who have been targeted for harm because of their gender and whose children have been targeted for harm as a, as a way to harm their mothers. I think that often when people think about refugees, they think of a small subsection of a population, perhaps who are politically engaged or maybe you know families of gang members or something like that. But mm-hmm. this seems to be much more widespread. Is that accurate? I think so. I mean, I think if you're talking about gender-based violence, obviously, then you have, you know, 50% of the population affected or potentially affected. Um, But what we've seen is that conditions in the Northern Triangle for women have deteriorated significantly over the last, you know, five to 10 years. And in Honduras in particular, the situation for women deteriorated after the coup. So the sort of fledgling programs that were put into place to provide some sort of protection to women have essentially been dismantled or just completely ignored. And one of the other problems is that the the security apparatus that's in place that, you know, is supposed to function as a way to protect the people doesn't function that way. The government and the, and the police are so corrupt that uh, they can't provide protection. Kenya, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the journey. So you were traveling with your son. Was it just the two of you or were you traveling with other people? Were you on foot? Were you taking buses? What was the trip like for you? There were a few of us when we left. We traveled by bus. Sometimes we walked. But soon we got to a place that was unfamiliar. And we didn't know which way to go from there. That's where we were approached by people who told us they could help us get across the border if we paid them. 
Were you scared? I mean, this was such a huge undertaking. You've left behind everything uh, in Honduras. You're in an unfamiliar territory and you're with your son. Can you tell me uh, what that was like for you emotionally? It was very difficult leaving everything behind, especially because I left my daughter and my whole family. I never imagined that I would have to. It was either go or face something worse if we stayed. So I left and on our way here, what was going through my mind was that I was taking my son to safety and everything else was secondary to that. Kim, how did you come into contact with Kenya? Kate and I met because Kate has been uh, doing another pro bono case for a separate issue uh, related to my work. And when the policy of separation uh, became a topic of, of news last summer, we were both outraged and we wanted to do something about it. I spoke Spanish but didn't have any legal background. And Kate obviously is an expert in immigration cases and asylum. Uh, but doesn't speak Spanish, so we said, well, let's let's raise some money um, and let's go down to the border. With your see. powers combined, you are the most effective individual. <laughs> <laughs> like, we'll make one good volunteer. We'll make one good volunteer between the two of us. Um, but that's exactly what we did, and we reached out to our network of friends and families for support, and immediately everyone said, yes, of course. And we also reached out to other people we knew who might be able to connect us to organizations who were doing work on the ground. And that's how we ended up volunteering with Raices in Texas. And they welcomed us, and, uh, and we were there for a week. And Kenya was our first, our first case that was presented to us. And Kate, did you meet Kenya while she was at a detention center? Yes. So we met Kenya and Michael, her son, 48 hours after they'd been reunified, after having been okay. separated. So and maybe let's back up a little bit so we can get to that point, and then we can come, come back to that. So Kenya, you crossed the border, and then what happened? Were you taken into custody immediately? Pues cruzamos y... Well, we crossed the border and kept walking until someone from Border Patrol detained us. That's what we were told to do. So we walked about 40 minutes until we ran into a patrol. And that's when they picked us up and took us to a place they called the Icebox. And, um, Kate, there are a few different types of facilities that, that the CBP houses people in. One of them is called the Icebox. So the Icebox is a room that migrants are typically placed into for a number of hours, although we have certainly seen reports of some migrants being forced to stay in those rooms for 24 hours or more. It's called the icebox because it's so cold. So it's an incredibly cold room where people usually don't have appropriate clothing and are given sometimes those metal blankets that you see in pictures on the news. Um, that's one type of holding room where they hold people while they're waiting to process them. Why is Border Patrol doing that? That seems like there's no other rationale other than in, it, in I don't understand. I don't, I, yeah, I don't know what rationale there would be behind that other than just to be cruel. Right. Um, uh, certainly I understand that people need to be processed, people need to be held while, you know, the administrative process is 
completed and paperwork is done, but there's no reason that people need to be in a freezing cold room. Right. We're not talking about people crossing the Canadian border into Minnesota in the dead of winter. No, we're talking about people generally coming from warm countries in a warmer part of the country, of our country, um, who don't usually have extensive cold weather clothing. Right. Um, and there's no reason for them to be held in, in cold like that. And what about the dog kennel? So the dog kennel is a, a different type of facility that is essentially a giant cage in a warehouse. And it's called the dog kennel because it looks like a dog kennel. And that's essentially what it is. It's just a human-sized cage. It's got cyclone fencing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, to separate people. And then there can be separations within the dog kennel as well. Right. Kim, I'm wondering if maybe you have any insight into why people like Kenya might choose to cross the border illegally as opposed to presenting themselves at a legal port of entry. I did some reporting on the border years ago, and I think that uh, a lot of them don't know what options are available to them. You know, they're not consulting immigration lawyers before they make the trip uh, over the border, and so Perhaps some of them do not know that they do have the option of, of filing an asylum claim or presenting themselves asking for asylum at a border crossing. Perhaps it's more lucrative for those who are guiding uh, migrants to use unsecured portions of the border. What I, I've noticed from my experience that most of the crossings were happening in insecure parts of the border. But I don't know exactly, I, ca I cannot speak to why, maybe Kate can, how they determine where they're going to come across the border or what process they're going to use. It depends on what smuggling group a particular migrant hires to help them get across the border. Um, but I also think that there is a safety issue involved. The ports of entry tend to be targeted by criminals, by, by gangs, by cartels, because they know that there are people there that are vulnerable, often traveling with their documents and some sum of money. And so crossing at a port of entry, presenting yourself at a port of entry, presents its own safety concerns. Um, we've heard stories about migrants being on the bridge and being turned away under this new policy where our government is not processing people at ports of entry right, and being, and being mm -hmm. attacked when they come off of the bridge and people trying to sleep on the bridge and under the bridge as a way to try and have some sort of safety in numbers because they're targeted. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think that's one reason. So, Kenya, you were brought to the icebox, uh, you and your son. Were you held together? And what were the conditions like in there? When we got there, we were split up. I was taken to the icebox, and he was taken somewhere else within the facility. Did you know where he was going? What were you told? And um, was everybody separated from their child? Yeah. I was holding his hand when we went in, and an officer stopped us and told me he wasn't going in with me. And when I asked him why, where he was going, he just told me that he was going somewhere else and couldn't go in with me. So they took me away. I didn't have a choice. They took me away and took him somewhere else. I could see the officer taking him away, and this happened to all the other mothers too. And were you re reunited with Michael soon thereafter? One morning, they took us somewhere else. 
A place we knew was called the dog kennel. So we were together on the bus, but then we were separated again. Right. And um, tell me about this second separation. So if I understand, you had to go before a judge. And when you were in court, you returned to find your son was gone. Is that right? We were taken to the dog kennel, as it's known, and they took him away again. There weren't any real walls there, though. We were separated by a lot of different fences. I was on one side, and he was far away on the other. I couldn't see him, but we were in the same warehouse facility. So the children were, were kept in one part of the kennel, and the mothers were kept in another part of the kennel, and they were not able to see each other. Were you told why they were separating mothers from their children? No. No. They just took the children away, and that was that. You couldn't see him, but could you hear him? Could you talk to each other or call out to each other? No. No, yo estaba. No, not at all. I was locked up in a different enclosure. We could only leave the enclosure when an officer would tell us to line up to go to the showers or when it was time to eat. I knew he was near, but I couldn't go to him, and he couldn't come to me. I lost track of the days because we never knew if it was day or night. I just know that at some point they opened the door and all the children came into the enclosure. There were a lot of moms there, so they lined the children up around the perimeter. That's when they told us to try and find our kids. They gave us 10 minutes to talk and see how they were doing. It was like they were telling us to say goodbye. So let's talk about that. Kenya, you went to go before a judge and tell us what happened there and then when you returned. An officer came and called out my name and told me I had to go in front of a judge. And I asked if Michael would come with me. He said no, so I intentionally walked by the space where Michael was so that I could see him. We looked at each other briefly through the wires, and he asked me where I was going. So I just said I would be right back. And then they took me away and shackled my ankles and my wrists, and they put a chain around my waist. We spent most of the day in the court, and when we came back, the children were all gone. What were you told about where Michael was? All they said was that they were busing us to where they were holding the children. So we were taken to another facility. The first thing I did was ask where my son was. Where was Michael? And the officers told me that there were no children in this facility. It's very painful to remember. It was so hard hearing that, especially because the people who told us the children weren't there said so in such a cruel way. What did they say? The female official said that the children were sent off to be given away that we obviously didn't love our children because we brought them here to give them away. Then we were given uniforms and taken to another terrible place. What were you thinking when you heard that? I felt so guilty. I felt so guilty that I had brought my son here and would never get to see him again. She brought him here to save his life. Yeah, I imagine after enduring that unbelievably difficult journey and you said that the only thought that was keeping you going was to do this for your son and to give him a better life. I can't imagine what that must have felt like when that woman said that to you. Yes, very much. And I also just want to point out that, you know, she had tried to find safety in Honduras. Um, Coming to the United States was not 
her first choice or something she really wanted to do. She had tried to be safe and to keep Michael safe in Honduras, and she couldn't. She was tracked by the person who was threatening them and who was harming her. So she gave up everything to bring him here so that he could be safe, and this is what happened. Yeah, it's never anyone's first option to uproot your entire life and move to a foreign country where you have no one and nothing. Have nothing, right. Kenya, how were you and Michael eventually reunited? It was a little while after. I don't even remember how long, maybe two to three weeks, I heard from him. I got a phone call and it was him. He didn't know where he was, but I did get to speak to him for five minutes. He said he was doing fine, but he didn't know where he was. But he said he was okay. He was crying and asked me to come and get him. And what happened after that, after you received the phone call? How did you end up tracking him down? We were apart for one whole month. That day I was told I was being moved to another location. And when I got there, they said, your son is here. He was in a little courtyard, and when I saw him sitting there, it was like my soul had come back into my body. I ran over to him, and I hugged him so tightly. But there was something off about him. He wasn't himself. I hugged him, and he didn't hug me back. Kate, do we know what happened? Like, why, why he materialized all of a sudden? Why he was taken away in the first place? Is this common? I mean, he was taken away as a, as a way to punish her right, for coming right. in. You know, as we know now, this, this was the policy at the time of this particular administration. This has not been the policy beforehand. Um, we don't know where he was. We only know that he was in Houston because he told us he was in Houston, but we have no information at all about what facility he was in whose care he was under, what happened during the time he was away from her. He, he was t- given school lessons. We have a notebook with his notes. And we know he was given a bunch of immunizations, and that's all we know. They, Do we know if he was given any other medications? I mean, I hear her describing him as indifferent, which could be a, a number of reasons. Right. We don't. Okay. We don't. They were reunited because of the court order that came from the judge in California in the Ms. L litigation. So I think, I believe they were reunited on July 14th because we met them on July 16th. That was why they were brought back together. But there was never any explanation at any point from anyone, any official of any kind, about why the actions they took were taken or why various decisions were made. Okay. You both met Kenya shortly thereafter. Kim, can you tell us a little bit about that and then about how Kenya and Michael came to live with you and your family? Mm-hmm. So when Kate and I decided to to volunteer <clears throat> with this group, Races, um, at that time, the policies were changing very rapidly. And so uh, there was confusion, some confusion when we got in the, into the facility. We could tell that the situation was very tense and delicate with the detention authorities at the detention facility. I think it was agreed that the pro bono lawyers would be allowed to see some uh, prospective clients. And that is how we met Kenya. They were literally the first case that was 
presented to us as someone who was seeking legal uh, assistance. The the three of us, or maybe the four of us, I think Michael was with, with her too. He was, but he was doing homework. He was, he was at that point not really communicating. He, uh-huh. wouldn't, he was very upset. Withdrawn. withdrawn. Yes. Yeah, so, so. yeah. We began learning about Kenya and the reasons behind her, her, her flight from Honduras to the U.S. It became apparent that she didn't really have any support in the U.S. She was able to tell us her story and what had happened to her, which I believe was only the second time she had ever spoken to anyone about it. And it became clear that she had a very complicated legal case because of where she was in her process. She'd already been ordered deported at that point because she'd been given her initial screening interview during the time she was separated from Michael, as had all of these other parents, and they had all failed. And and maybe, you know, I think that a lot of people don't quite understand Uh the process by which asylum happens. So maybe I'll tell you what I know and you Mm -hmm. can tell me, you know, fill in holes for me. So, you know, people hear about the caravan. Then if you you don't present yourself at a legal border entry, if you cross illegally uh, and are taken into custody, then you are held in a detention center until a judge can see you. And then you're allowed, everybody has the right to make a claim for asylum, regardless of how they entered. But you have to establish credible fear. Right. And then after, if credible fear is established, Mm -hmm. if it's not established, deportation proceedings begin. If it's not established... You're, you're given what's called an expedited removal order. You can request review of that particular credible fear decision by an immigration judge. Mm-hmm. And so that review happens usually on the detained docket, the court docket where the detention center is. And in those cases, generally, if someone doesn't have representation, the decision is upheld by the judge. And I then see. that expedited removal order becomes final and the government then returns people. If somebody does establish credible fear, then they sort of enter this waiting period where they have no legal right to work and are effectively on their own. And you hear these terrible stories of, you know, mothers with babies being given like one bottle of formula and like sent out into the wild to figure it out. So talk to me about the first credible fear interview. Kenya did not pass. So Kenny did not pass the first credible fear interview, and it was not because they found her not to be credible. They believed what she said. However, she there were a number of deficiencies in the interview. One, the translator who was doing the translation cut her off right at the beginning when she started to explain in detail what had happened to her and chastised her for giving so much detail. So that immediately shut her down, and so she then... Her understanding was that she should only give basically yes or no answers and only give information if it was specifically asked of her. Mm -hmm. Her interviewer did not ask her questions to elicit the appropriate information, the way that officers are trained to do. And at the time that she had a credible fear interview, there was a a decision had come out from Attorney General Sessions who had referred a very important case back to himself to issue a new decision on, basically, because he didn't like the decision. And his decision on that case held, essentially, that claims involving domestic violence or persecution related to gang membership and claims under the Convention Against Torture likely wouldn't pass the credible fear stage. At the time that she had her interview, that decision 
was affecting the way that the officers in the office that were conducting credible fear interviews where she had her credible fear interview were analyzing the credible fear claims. Credible fear is a very low bar. It's designed to be a low bar because it's just a threshold screening. And the assumption is someone is not going to have legal counsel, nor are they going to understand the complicated rules for asylum and the various levels of protection. So it's can you establish that there's a reasonable possibility that you would be persecuted on account of a protected ground or a reasonable possibility that it's more likely than not that you will be tortured? They found that she had not established that there was a reasonable possibility that she had been persecuted because of a protected ground or that she would be tortured in the future. It became very clear to us, to me, after speaking with her, that this was incorrect, that she had been persecuted, that she was persecuted on account of a protected ground, and that she absolutely had been tortured and was risking torture upon return. So we were at, when she came to us, she had already asked for a review from a judge of that decision, and the judge had essentially rubber stamped the decision. And so we were at the point where we were trying to get the asylum office to agree to give her a new credible fear interview, mm -hmm. which they did not agree to do. And she, like most of the other parents in her situation, and then the group of mothers that she ended up being detained for a very long time with, were all in the same, same boat where they had claims that would have previously passed credible fear, but did not because of this change in the policy. Right. All of a sudden, gender-based violence was not grounds. Right. I mean, gender-based violence has always been a ground, but they like to conflate domestic violence with gender-based violence. So hers is actually not a domestic violence claim. And in fact, that decision has now been overturned mm -hmm. um, in, a, in a lawsuit that made a big, is very important. But she eventually was granted another hearing. She was eventually granted another hearing because of multiple other lawsuits that were filed, including a lawsuit where one of the allegations was that all of the mothers who were given their credible fear interviews during the time that they were separated from their children had not been provided with the appropriate disability accommodation because all of the mothers were evaluated, were given forensic psychiatric evaluations from psychi volunteer psychiatrists. And it, of course, it turned out that every single mother was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder because of the separation. Right, right. She got a new hearing. Uh, she passed her credible mm -hmm. fear threshold mm -hmm. and is now going through the formal process to seek asylum. Is that right? That's correct. So Kenya, you, you recently moved out of Kim's basement into an apartment of your own with Michael. Is that right? Si, yes, yes. And so what is life like for you right now? Pues I feel fine. We're fine. I feel like both me and Michael are in a safe place. I mean, I'm not working right now, but we're okay. We're safe. Estamos bien. I, I should point out that they arrived in our home shortly before Thanksgiving and lived with us for a little over three months, Kenya and Michael. Michael was immediately enrolled. We enrolled him at our local elementary school, and uh, he has been attending school pretty much since day one, since he's been in New York, and that has been a tremendously positive experience for him because he's, even though he, he was anxious about starting school because he had been bullied, at his school in Honduras, it was a one-room schoolhouse. But that is a, a very positive outcome from their time with us. It's the fact that he has, he has a, a stimulating, nurturing, caring, academic environment that he goes to every day. And that gives him a lot of stability, I think, in, 
in his everyday life mm-hmm. and gives Kenya peace of mind as well. And Kenya, how is Michael doing? It sounds like after you were reunited, he had been through trauma and withdrew a little bit. Is he the Michael that you that you knew from before? He's been different since that day, and it's been tremendously difficult and painful. He blames me for what has happened, and it's been hard because I could feel that he's mad at me. He's always picking fights with me, like I'm the one who's to blame. It's been hard being on this end of his anger. Mm-hmm. Kim, I'm wondering if you can maybe provide some information for for people who might be interested in Kenya's plight or the plight of people like hers. So as, as we said, while she's waiting for her asylum claim to be processed, she can't work. That's correct. And so people who come to this country who don't have family, who aren't able to legally work until they reach that step of their asylum process, how can people help if they feel so inclined to do so? Uh, I, and I think that's a very important point, Mackenzie, because one thing I think most people don't realize is that their suffering did not stop the moment that they were reunified with their children. Uh, in the case of Michael and Kenya, they were still held in detention for four months or so. And every night you, they would go to bed not knowing if they would be deported the next day. Or separated again. Or separated again. Because there were some parents that were reseparated. Yeah, so that's one, one <laughs> issue that is important to, to underline. The second issue is that that we have an immigration crisis, and the crisis is that that there is no policy of support, no assistance provided either at a federal level, a state level, or a municipal level for these asylum seekers who are released into society. And it's just pure luck that we were connected. And just to, to add, to sort of have a sense of what you know what we've we've tried to do to help her and so what what other families need and what i think other families are lacking is you know kim provided safe shelter for her and michael in his home and food and, you know those basic necessities but we needed to get both of them in to see doctors because they needed regular medical care they both have been in therapy for the trauma suffered back home and the trauma of the separation which even what we're doing right now isn't sufficient. We need more extensive treatment. Michael is in school. Kenya needs to learn English, so we've been trying to get her English lessons. They literally came out of detention with nothing. So we found out 24 hours before they were going to be released, that they were going to be released. We were scrambling to try and figure out where we would get the money together to get them to New York. United Airlines donated flights, which was amazing, but they showed up with no coats and it was cold, you know? Mm -hmm. So just the scramble to get all of these basic necessities. And I, you know, have been doing this work for a long time. I have many clients who are homeless, face homelessness, and we have to move through the shelter system, who aren't able to get medical care because they don't qualify for Medicaid. They don't qualify even for sort of state-based programs until they get to that point where they get a work permit and a social security number. Um, We know of women who are forced essentially to trade sex for housing. We know of children who aren't enrolled in school because the families are homeless and they're moving around so much that they don't have a safe consistent address. And that's problematic for their legal cases as well, because then people don't get mail that Mm -hmm. they need to get. And to me, this just underscores too, 
The conditions must be so bad. The persecution, the violence that people are facing in their home countries must be so devastating that this is worth it. And I think that, you know, there is a prevailing um, conservative notion of, you know, people coming to this country and looking for a handout. You know, these are people who are legally applying for asylum, Mm -hmm. who want to work and contribute and are literally showing up with nothing. With nothing. Yeah. And leaving behind everything and usually you know the people that they love right. the most right with no idea whether or not they'll ever see them again right and Kenya maybe the last question is for you um, I think most Americans have heard about the caravan but all they know is that it's thousands of people who've made their way across Mexico to the border I don't think they know the human stories behind it and I'm curious about if you have anything you want to say to people who may not have the understanding of why someone would undertake that journey. I don't think anyone can grasp the reason why someone would choose to leave their entire life behind. But I think that if people took a step back, they would realize the sacrifices I've made, leaving my family, leaving my daughter behind, leaving my whole life behind. I've had to start over from nothing. But I know, and I can confirm, that this country is full of good people. Good people that won't let you down, even though the president has acted badly with this policy, and I think these separations have hurt a lot of people. In spite of that, I still think the good people outweigh the bad. There are a lot of people like me, fleeing threats or violence. They're fleeing hunger and poverty. No one is coming just for fun. We leave everything behind and start again from nothing. Well, I want to thank you all for coming on the show today. Kenya, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, We'll also include a link to the GoFundMe page uh, in the episode description so people can find that there. And Kim and Kate, thank you so much for being here as well. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. That's the show for today. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. One Two BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham.